Thank you, choir. Good job again. Good morning, First Baptist Dixon. Y'all doing okay today? Love hearing a good choir sing, don't you? Appreciate that opportunity. A lot of churches I go to today, there's no choirs left, you know? There's not, not many choirs singing, it seems, but I always love hearing a good choir. I like to sing with a good choir every now and then. Um, so thank you, choir, music team. Um, thank you, Pastor Mike, for the opportunity to be in your pulpit today. I don't take that lightly, brother. I, I appreciate the opportunity. It gives me an opportunity not only to share a little bit of the word with you, but to say thank you to First Baptist. Um, your pastor and your staff kind of reached out to my team uh, because of a heart of concern for the welfare of children in our state. Um, there's 9,000 kids in the state system today in, in Tennessee. Uh, that's a lot of kids, isn't it? That's displaced from their homes. Some of them, uh, of course, incarcerated all the way down to some that we call level one children. Children that are removed because of neglect or drug use or abandonment, uh, little things like that, if you call those little things. Um, we figure there's about 3,000 of the children in our state's care that Tennessee Baptist Children's Homes could supply the need for with the amount of money it takes to hire case managers, with the amount of volunteers it takes to be foster families, um, we could care for about a third of the kids. So today, statewide, we're caring for about 130 children. Um, 84 of them today are in state's custody. Uh, so we do foster care from Memphis to Kingsport. We're kind of a small fish in a big pond. We've got 64 families today. That changes every week. When a family adopts a child and um, you know that family comes out off of our team because they need to bond with that child. And so we're constantly recruiting uh, foster families for our ministry. The next opportunity to learn what it is to be a foster family with us will come this coming fall in Middle Tennessee. We will offer another class. We don't know where yet. If you have several of your families, that all of a sudden the Lord puts it on your heart to get involved in the foster care ministry, then maybe First Baptist Dixon hosts that fall class. We would love to come. My team will come and train you and uh, write the home study for you. And once DCS signs off on that home study, uh, my team would be there when children are placed in your home. And we will walk with you through that process as another level of support uh, between you and, and along with the Department of Children's Services. So if the Lord is doing something in your heart, uh, you've got a room, you know, you gotta have a bed for kids. You can't just pile them up, same room, 10 kids, things. You gotta have a bed for them, gotta have some space. But if you got room in your home and room in your heart and uh, you wanna be a blessing to some kids that need it, um, that's kind of what the challenge has been for you this month in this foster care awareness uh, month. So I appreciate your pastor's heart for that and your staff's heart for that. And thank you for helping us do what we do. By praying for us, by serving with us, you'll have opportunities to do that again. Uh, and certainly by giving so that we might take care of our kids. We welcome children in hard places with the love of Christ. That's pretty much what we do. It's really not that complicated, uh, except it is complicated, but that's our statement. We welcome children in hard places. Those hard places come from folks that maybe they're homeless. We've got two children right now whose mom was homeless. They were living in their car with their mother in Nashville. Someone told her about us. I don't even know who told her. 
They reached out and so we're taking care of her kids while she gets on her feet. Uh, do you know how hard it is to go from zero to a place to live, uh, deposit on an apartment, utilities turned on? It's, it's a long jump from zero to having those things. And so she's working on that. We're taking care of her kids. She's still in contact with her kids. You don't lose your kids when you place them with us in residential care. Let me tell you about two ways we take care of kids. One is residential care. That means that they come and live with us on one of our three campuses in Tennessee. The closest to you, of course, would be Brentwood. We'll have campus in Brentwood. Kids come and live with us there. We have a campus in Chattanooga. Some kids come and live on that campus. We also house our independent living services in Chattanooga. That means when a kid ages out, turns 18, and is still with us, uh, they can stay with us, go to Chattanooga, several colleges to choose from, learn a trade. Whatever. We don't, all of our children are not college material, but they can all learn a trade. Um, and you can stay with us until your early 20s and we'll help you get a good start in adulthood. We don't just set you out on the street when you turn 18 with your suitcase and say, good luck to you. It's been fun. Uh, we'll walk with you if you'll let us. But 18-year-olds can sign themselves out of our care. And sometimes they do. I beg them not to. Don't sign yourself out. Stay with us. Let us help you. But many of them are like who we were when we were 18. We're ready to tackle the world. We think we can handle it. Um, so sometimes that happens. We also have a ranch in West Tennessee. If you're familiar with Millington, Tennessee, it's in Shelby County, it, but it's not anything like Memphis. It's in the kind of in the country. We have a 250 acre working cattle ranch in West Tennessee. It's a historical month for our ranch. Uh, we have taken our first young lady on the ranch. It's historically been the boys ranch. And now we're not calling it the boys ranch anymore. It's just the ranch. But the people that I can't get to stop calling it the boys ranch are the people who work at the ranch because they've called it the boys ranch. Their emails, boys ranch. I'm like, gotta stop calling it boys ranch. It's the ranch. So my own dad said, you think it's wise to put girls out there at the ranch? And I'm like, Dad, we've been raising girls on the ranch. They've been staff children. I've got a picture of five teenage girls raised on the ranch. They just were staff children instead of children in our care. I said, we've had girls on the ranch. They go to school with girls. They're gonna live with girls when it's all said and done. We got girls and boys in Chattanooga, got girls and boys in Brentwood. I said, besides that, you need to pray for our boys. This first girl we took is 61210. I met her two weeks ago. She is a delightful young lady. She is so sweet. Um, but it comes from East Tennessee, but she's all the way in West Tennessee on our ranch. So we're excited about that. She's, she's our first young lady. So we're opening our ranch to young ladies. Uh, we figured they'd be from West Tennessee. She, however, is from East. So that's residential care. For all kinds of crazy reasons, people need help. Um, some families need help. Adopted children, trauma when they were very young, behaviors show up when they hit puberty. All of a sudden, you're not parenting the, the way you raise your biological children. It's not the same with an adopted child. And sometimes parents and kids, they get to a point where we're just about to pull each other's hair out, it feels like. Before that happens, we wanna step in and help you if we can. Um, 
all kinds of crazy reasons that children would be not able to be cared for by their guardian or their parents. And that's why we're there. 88 beds across the street in residential care. We also do this foster care thing. Um, 2013, we got back into the foster care world in light of all the press that was going on with the Department of Children's Services. Now, let me say this about our DCS. Those case managers, those folks work extremely hard at caring for the kids in our state. They are piled up with so many cases, it'll blow your mind. Our DCS case managers can be assigned 30 cases. That means 30 homes. If they're sibling groups, if they each were three siblings, there's 90 children. And I heard on the news a couple of months ago, a lady was talking who was a former DCS employee said she had that many kids on her caseload. She's supposed to check on them every month. You can't do it. They're working their fingers to the bone and it's just overwhelming. So our team comes in, we wanna be a help to the Department of Children's Services. Our kids still have a DCS case manager, but we put the, another one with them. My case managers, they have 10 to 15 children on their caseloads, not families, children. Um, but they also, same person recruits, the same person does the training, the same person writes the home study. So they don't have a massive caseload because they've got a lot of other responsibilities. We're gonna reorganize that this summer and have some home study writers to relieve that burden. It's sometimes hard to be good at everything, <laughs> but we expect these young people, and I say young people, most of them are pretty young people, uh, and all of them ladies. We had one thorn among the roses and, and he resigned just a couple weeks ago. I'm like, what are you doing, man? So we had one guy case manager and now we're back to all women at the moment, but it just seems to be uh, women's got that heart of compassion more so than some of us guys. Anyway, we have a no cost contract with the state of Tennessee. What does that mean? That means we are licensed to place children who are in state's custody with our families. We recruit Christian people. You don't have to be a Baptist. Most of ours are because that's who knows about us. Uh, but you do have to be a Jesus follower and active in your local church. Um, and so we recruit those families. We train those families. Uh, we write those home studies. We provide case management. So the no cost part comes that the state of Tennessee does not pay us as children's homes anything to do what we do. If you're a foster parent, you get a stipend for each child that's in state's custody. You get a stipend, like level one kid, it's about 25 bucks per child per day. Some of our people don't even know they're gonna get money to do what they do. They sign up because the Lord's told them to take care of the kids. And uh, so they're like, we get money for this? Well, you get money, but it's designed to care for the kid. Um, other agencies for a level one child gets an additional $75 per child per day. So we are literally saying no to about $7,000 a day for our ministry. You're like, why are you that stupid? Uh, well, we are, we are that stupid uh, because we don't want any handcuffs because we do this in the love of Christ. Take out the love of Christ, we're out of business. We do this because God's called us to it. 
Um, and we want to share the gospel with every kid in our care. If it's a baby in foster care coming out of the hospital, we hope that a mom or dad singing Jesus loves me when they're rocking them to sleep. When they're a young child, we hope they're telling them in age appropriate ways about the stories in the Bible and about how Jesus loves them. If they're teenagers, we want them to know that the answer to all of our brokenness is Jesus. And if they don't know that, then we've just served them for a little bit of time and really done them no good long term. But if we can help them know that Jesus is the answer to our brokenness, uh, we feel like uh, that might just set them on the road to knowing him and being a disciple of Christ. So thank you for helping us do those things uh, for children all across our state. I appreciate that so, so much. Let me introduce you to some of them, okay? This is Mariana. Mariana came to us just a couple of years ago. Typically when a kid comes to us, they're two years behind in school. They haven't been attending school very regularly. Um, they, their parent could sometimes care less whether they make it. Um, they've not been helped with homework. They've not been helped at all at home. So a kid comes to us, they're two years behind grade level. Uh, and we begin to work really hard with them to get them caught up. Our staff works hard with them. Our house parents work hard with them. Our case managers on our residential campuses do. We have tutors, volunteer who will come and help our kids with homework. We love them. That is such a blessing. You see, eight kids can live in one of our homes on our residential campuses with the house parent, mom and dad. And that house parent might have two of their own kids. So there's like 12 people if it's full. 12 people living in a house. Can you imagine... If you've got 10 kids in there, everybody's got to get homework done and everybody's had supper and everybody's got to get baths. It gets quite crazy. So any help we get volunteer-wise, it's a blessing and we appreciate it. So they come and Mariana, man, she catches on quick. She's a sharp young lady. And so she has her multiplication tables at school. It's time to do it. She finishes them in four minutes, 16 seconds. She's first in her class to complete them. Got them 100% correctly. What happens? We buy her a slushie as big as she is to treat her. To say, great job, Mariana. She's a sweet young lady. We also have this young lady I want you to meet, Layla. Layla is, look at the guns on her little arms holding that ball. She's a true, she is a true competitor. She's in Chattanooga. She goes to a private Christian school in Chattanooga. It's a small school, but she is a really great basketball player. She's played for several years. She's got a nice little jump shot there. Matt Miller would be impressed. Um, Pastor Mike's son, Matt, he's a ball player. I'm telling you, um, used to be, if he's not now, he sure used to be. Um, but Layla loves to play ball because of that. She's a good student. Because you don't make the grades, you don't play the game. Y'all, anybody do that at your house? That's the way we do it at our house. TBCH, our homes, uh, you gotta make the grade. If you're gonna play football, play basketball, play soccer, run track, be a cheerleader, we want you to do those things, but you can't fool around, you gotta make the grades. And so she's worked so hard, I wanted you to meet Layla. Um, these are some guys at our ranch. This is what Sunday looks like at the ranch. These boys are ready to go to church. They thought they looked rather spiffy on this day, so they wanted their picture taken. But I want to tell you a brief story about the guy in the middle. Um, he got struck on this girl at school. And it just happens, you know. Boys and girls go to school together. Sometimes they end up getting struck on each other, right? Um, so he talks to his house mom and dad about dating. Don't you love those conversations? 
I remember when my daughter's growing up, she is a teenager, and, and Jennifer, my daughter, just had a baby this week, my first grandchild, thank you. Um, she, uh, she is, she's a pretty girl. She's a gorgeous young lady. And um, these boys start calling my house. I answered the phone one day. I say, hello, is Jennifer there? I'm like, that is not the way we do that. I said, here's what we're gonna do. You call and I say, hello. You say, hey, brother Greg, how are you? And then when I answer that question, then you say, may I speak with Jennifer? I said, so I wanna hang up. You call me back, we're gonna try that. So I hung up. A few seconds, I didn't think he'd even call back. But a few seconds, he called back. Phone rang. I said, hello. And it was like, uh, 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 Jennifer there? I just had to hang up. I'm like, you gotta tell those boys how to talk to me if they're gonna call and talk to my daughter. So yeah, I understand this dating thing kind of hits us pretty Pretty, pretty hard. My wife says there's a flip that switch when boys start calling my house. Uh, generally, I'm a nice guy. Um, but anyway, this young man, we're like, you, you're not going to go anywhere with her. We're not going to let you meet somewhere and go to a movie together. You know, that's, not, that's just not going to happen in our world. He said, can I invite her to church? Yeah, now you're getting somewhere. So our husband said, yes, absolutely. You can invite her to church. Well, you know what happened? She shows up at church with her parents and the second week, she comes back to church. And the third week, she walks down the aisle and gives her heart to Jesus. Isn't that sweet? Oh, I'm so proud, uh, you know, that the Lord would use our guys that are living with us for no good reason. They didn't win a contest to get to come and live with us. Um, but yet, here's a guy who's like, let me at least invite her to church. And there's a picture of her counseling with the pastor um, at the front of the church. I don't have that picture for you, but it was a sweet, uh, just a sweet moment that the Lord used that guy to reach that little girl for Jesus. An invitation to church. What a blessing. Anyway, here's some other folks. Foster care, you know, sometimes it results in adoptions. If you want to adopt a child, you probably don't want to come to us. We're probably not the agency to help you adopt a child. But if you want to foster and it accidentally turns into a foster, a, an adoptive situation, uh, that just might happen over time. 17 adoptions last year. This is Amari. Um, <laughs> he's 600 days in foster care. The kid's not hardly 600 days old. Uh, and I don't know if there's a cuter little boy. He's like, y'all go ahead. I'm fine on the steps of the Capitol here, of the courthouse. Um, Amari was adopted on Valentine's Day this year. I've got another couple I want to show you. Uh, these two young ladies, uh, Jamie and Ray Lynn, two little girls being held. Uh, they were adopted after a year and a half in the system. Um, Ella, the, the lady on the right, um, Ella's one of our case managers in Mill, Tennessee, but that's Rayleigh and Jamie, Raylan and Jamie's new family. Um, who else we got here? Uh, these two young girls uh, adopted by that sweet family. Notice the judge is in the same picture beforehand, same judge. That's over in East Tennessee. Tracy on the right is our case manager. Uh, one of our case managers in the Knoxville area. Knoxville is a hot spot for us. We have more case managers in Knoxville than we do anywhere uh, in Middle and East combined. We have the Knoxville East area. They're just DCS playing ball with us. So we, we fish where the fish are biting and uh, that's where we hire people, where we can find people to volunteer and uh, DCS got to call us though. We're dependent on them to place kids. Um, so this is uh, Janae. Janae is a single lady 
doing foster care. I don't know how you do that. You know, you gotta have a support system, right? She was the adopted Aiden, uh, got him at four days old, and after a year and a half, he now belongs to her. Um, so that's her support group. You do need some support. If you're gonna do this kind of work, you better have a team of people around you. A church would help you. A group from church would help you, but your family certainly would come in handy as well. That's her support group. Um, do I have any more on there? Yeah, I got the Powers family, that's right. Jackson and Braxton, these boys, they're gonna put this mom and dad to the test. Something just tells me about it. Two and a half years in foster care, they came up available for adoption because reunification was just not gonna happen. So the court terminated parental rights and Trice and Aaron were their foster parents and they said, hey, we want them. Uh, and so they have that support group for the powers. It's gonna take that uh, to take care of kids that are in hard places. Why do we do what we do? That's what I wanna talk a little bit about today. We do that because of compassion. The Lord is a compassionate God, is he not? Uh, Jesus proved himself to be compassionate. Every time in scripture that it talks about Jesus having compassion, and he does something about the situation. And that's the actual definition of the word compassion. It is deep sympathy and sorrow. Yes, it's that, but it's accompanied by the desire to alleviate the suffering. Deep sympathy and sorrow accompanied by the desire to alleviate suffering. Now you might have deep sympathy and sorrow for someone. I do that regularly. I'm driving up and down the state of Tennessee. I, I get to go as far as Kingsport and some days I'm in Memphis and all in between. And as I'm riding up and down the road, people break down, people have flat tires. And I'm like, man, I hate that for them. But I just, my cruise is on 77 miles an hour and I just keep rolling. You ever do, you drive 77, right? Did you know that 77 highway patrolmen just wave and say, thank you for going so slow? <laughs> never have to take my brake. I never have to tap it. Never have to click my cruise off at 77. They don't even care. It's true. 80, mm, you're pushing it. And 77 is a little safer. Seven's a good number. It's a whole perfect number. It just works for me. I'm the seventh president. I drive 77 miles an hour. Yes, it's breaking, it's breaking the law. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, I'll have deep sympathy and sorrow for people that need help, but I'll just drive by. Now, if I pull over, which I've done occasionally to help a lady change a flat tire maybe, then I've moved into the realm of compassion because I've done something to alleviate the suffering. That's what compassion is. You've not moved into the realm of compassion feeling sorry for somebody or saying, I hope things get better for you or I hate that for you. That's, that's not compassion. That's feeling sorry for people. But when you start to do something to make a difference, then you've moved into the realm of compassion. I'd like to take you three places today where Jesus was said to have had compassion and show you what compassion will actually do. Beginning in Matthew chapter 14. I'm not gonna read the whole chapter to you. I'm gonna give you three Verses of scripture today, three different stories. First one, Matthew 14, what's happening? John the Baptist has been killed. Herod has arrested John the Baptist. John the Baptist kind of offended him. He said, You're not, you should not have ever taken your brother's wife. 
And that kind of offended Herod and Herod has arrested him. And while he kind of liked John the Baptist, he, he, he still had him arrested. And then he throws a party for some people and his wife, he shouldn't have taken's daughter dances at the party for the party guests. And Herod was so pleased by her dance that he foolishly says, what do you want? Name what you want, I'll give it to you. Her mother had coached her. Yes, this story's in your Bible. Her mother had coached her and said, when he asks you what you want, tell him you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's sick, isn't it? But that's what she asked for. And he gave that oath in front of his guests and Herod had no choice in his mind but to honor it. He sent word to the prison, had John the Baptist's head removed from his body and brought and presented to that young lady on a platter that she took to her mom. The Bible says that the disciples took John the Baptist's body and buried it and then they went and told Jesus. What did Jesus do? Matthew 14 says that Jesus got in a boat to go to a secluded place. Jesus wanted to be alone. Jesus needed to grieve. He loved John the Baptist. They have a history together. It starts before they were born. Some of you will know this happened. Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist about six months along. And Mary goes to visit her cousin having conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Son of God, in her womb. And when she enters the room, John the Baptist kind of leaps in his mother's womb at the presence of Jesus. They're not even born. And we'll talk about when life begins. There's just some scriptural reference that life's there in the womb. I don't know how much time they spent together as children. Distant cousins. Maybe they played together every now and then. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they saw each other. I imagine they did. But John the Baptist ended up being the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one out there living on locusts and wild honey, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. It was him paving the way, setting things up for Jesus. It was John the Baptist who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. You remember that? Jesus comes saying, hey, I want you to bow. No way, no way. I know who you are. I'm not even worthy to take your shoes off. No, John the Baptist, you're going to baptize me right here. They have a history together. Jesus loved John the Baptist. He needs to grieve the death of John the Baptist. So he got in a boat to go the other side of the lake to pray, to talk to the Father, to be alone, to collect his thoughts. The problem People figured where he was going. And by the hundreds and thousands, they go around on foot and they're waiting on the other side when Jesus comes ashore. And so verse 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. A large crowd, folks, this story precedes the feeding of the 5,000. That's how large this crowd is. And felt, what's the word? Compassion for them and healed their sick. Watch what happened. Jesus going to be alone, to pray, to grieve. Compassion did what? It changed his schedule. And that's what compassion will do to me and you. It'll change our schedule. Jesus was moved by it and he began to heal. They're sick. How many healed that day? We don't know. 
But I imagine there was a ton of them. Compassion changed the schedule. Compassion will change your schedule. That's why you stop to help people that need help. That's why you turn aside to people that need help. I was in our, I was at the ranch on a mission team, leading a mission team from First Baptist Portland several years ago now. And we were gonna have an area of our ranch that's kind of grown up. There's a lot of trees. You can't hardly get a bush hog in there. Um, we don't have it fenced for cattle. And so we thought we would put a fence around that and put our goats in there. Any of you have goats? Anybody have goats? Anybody have seen a goat? Know what a goat is? Know what goats eat? Everything. So they're wonderful weed eaters. And so we put the goats in there. We're going to let them chew that down just to keep it all looking good. Because we want our ranch to be manicured. We want it to look like it belongs to the Lord. And whenever you're out there in Millington and you pull in there, we want you to be, wow, this is gorgeous. That's the way we want our properties to look. So my job was to take a couple of our boys from First Baptist and a couple of boys from the ranch. And we're going to drive about 125 T-posts into the ground with the post driver. You know, the bing, bing, bing. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you done this? All right. I thought, I need a show to work out. That'd be a great assignment. I'll get it started. Let them boys drive it home. But I knew that we we're going to start that the next morning. And I'm going to be deaf that I might not be able to hear the dinner bell. So I'm going to run to Walmart early that next morning and grab some squishy earplugs so that we can all put them in our ears so that we got crazy from hearing that pole driver ring in our ears. I'm on my way into Walmart. Nobody's, I mean, seven o'clock in the morning is the time to go if you're going to go. There wasn't anybody hardly there. But there's an old guy sitting along, leaned against the edge of the Walmart store right outside the door. And I'm walking in, he says, sir. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't do anything for you today. And I just kept going. And I got to the carts and the Lord kind of spoke to my spirit and said, who do you think you are? Well, who was I? A pastor on a mission trip with a lot of money in my pocket. And I said, I can't do anything for you today. I could talk to him, I could listen to him. I could say, hey, what's the problem? What's going on? How are you? I could peel him off a $20 bill. Nobody would have cared. So here's what I did. I grabbed a honey bun, the breakfast of champions. I grabbed an orange juice and I grabbed a banana and I got my earplugs at the back of the store. But I'm, I'm on a jog through this store. Nobody's in there and I'm, I'm hurrying. I got to get back for breakfast with the team. But I'm going to go find that guy, apologize for lying to him, see what's going on. The problem, I come back out of that store seven minutes tops. He's gone. I asked the staff, hey, did an did elderly guy just walk in? No, hadn't seen anybody. I walk around, I walk to my car, I drive around the parking lot. I go around the whole store, the backside of Walmart. I cannot find him. The dude is gone. And I said, Lord, if that was an angel sent to test Greg McCoy, I failed the test. I failed it. I, sometimes I'm just dense. I'm slow to compassion. A month later, I'm in the same parking lot by the gas pumps, filling up my truck, and the lady pulls up in an old car, and I mean, man, it's running rough. It's like, oh, boom, boom, oh, boom. I'm waiting for the Uncle Buck backfire any moment. Boom, boom, And she's like, sir, can you? I said, yes, ma'am, I can. And I began to reach for my wallet. Now, listen, I'm not saying we ought to hand cash to everybody that wants cash. 
But I just knew I wasn't going to miss it in the same parking lot in the same month twice. She had a baby in the back, another young lady on the driver's side. She just needed a little fuel. But I wasn't going to miss it. Folks, compassion will change your schedule. I had such an important schedule, didn't I? I was on my way to get some squishy earplugs. Wasn't that more valuable than that man sitting on the side of that building? What's wrong with me? But that's what we do when we have tunnel vision. When we've, got a, when we've got places to go and people to see and things to do, you and I blow by people all the time who need compassion. And we're God's people. Who else gonna help them? God's people, that's who. God said, I want you to help them. You will care for the stranger, the alien, the sojourner, the refugee, the immigrant, whatever you wanna call them. My people will take care of them. My people take care of the widows. My people take care of the orphan. God said that my people will do that. And so I try to not have blinders on like I sometimes do, knowing people all around me all the time are in need. That's why you will fix a meal for another family instead of your own, because of compassion. Your schedule was to feed your family, but somebody in your church family member died and you're preparing a meal for them. That's why you mow somebody else's yard when yours is already too high because of compassion. They've had trouble in their family. They can't get it done. That's why you will do it. That's why you respond. It'll change your schedule. That's why you'll be late to a meeting, meeting some kind of need. That's why it'll change what you were going to do that day. That's why your church staff every day, I imagine people come by in need here at First Baptist Dixon. And they think, hey, today I'm going to get some sermon work done. Nope, today you're dealing with this family in need. Compassion will change your schedule. Second story comes from Mark chapter 1. Jesus is preaching, casting out demons, causing the blind to see, the lame to walk. Full ministry mode. And there's a guy standing in the way of the path of Jesus and his disciples. Nobody's moving him. Nobody's pushing him out of the way. Nobody's gently taking him by the arm to lead him out of the way. Why? Because he is a leper. Leprosy in Jesus' day, very, very serious. Sores all over your body. Blood flow to your extremities would be restricted. Sometimes your fingers might just kind of fall off. You'd be heavily bandaged. You had to warn people you were even around. Unclean, unclean, you had to say so that people didn't inadvertently bump up against you in the marketplace. If you were a parent worth your salt in Jesus' day, you warned your children about lepers. You don't mess with them. You don't get around them. You don't touch them. You just coached your kids that way because leprosy was so serious. You'd be removed from your home and you'd live outside the city gates with a colony of people who had leprosy. Your hope of survival totally had somebody else been willing to throw you something to eat. And this guy's standing in the way. And he says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. In verse 41 of Mark chapter 1, Moved with, what's the word, church? Compassion. Ah, compassion. Sympathy and sorrow accompanied by the desire to alleviate the problem. Stretched out his hand, Jesus did, and touched him. What do you not do with a leper? You don't touch them. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. How long had it been? since that guy had felt the warmth 
of another human being's touch. And Jesus said, I'm willing to be cleansed. You know what a compassion will do for you? Compassion will cause you to get your hands dirty. That's why you'll do disaster relief and mud out homes that have been flooded. That's why you'll crank up your chainsaw and cut down, cut up trees that the Lord blew down a couple of months ago. That's why you go all around the world ministering to people. I've been to Honduras eight or 10 times and I've hugged kids that are ice filled heads. Um, my niece has held them and let them wet on her. I'm like, do you have to pick up every kid that we see in Honduras? And this little, this kid loves kids. And I'm like, the kid just peed all over you. And uh, she's like, it's okay, it'll dry. I'm like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not that crazy about it. But that's why we will love people who don't look like us, who don't smell like us, who don't bathe as often as we do, who don't have as many teeth in their head as we might. Compassion will cause you not to see yourself any better than anybody else. Pastor Mike, when they were interviewing me about being the president of children's homes, they said, Greg, we know you to be kind of hands-on kind of person. Do you think you can delegate like you will need to delegate as president? And I said, well, I might have to learn that, but I guarantee you it doesn't hurt the president to get his hands dirty every now and then. If we ever think we're at a place where we're too good, to serve people, we've arrived at the wrong place. And we didn't get there because we was following Jesus. We're gonna follow Jesus, we're gonna get our hands dirty because that's what compassion does. Let me share one more and I'm done. Luke chapter seven. You'll know this story as the widow of Nain. Jesus and his disciples are approaching the city of Nain, N-A-I-N. They see a funeral procession coming out of the city gates. In the box that is being carried by the pallbearers, we would call them, is the body of a young man. He is the only son of his mother. His mother happens to be a widow before he died. So already you've got a problem. You've got a lady who's a widow who's now dependent on her son for a home, uh, maybe for well-being, maybe for food on the table. Sometimes a widow could be a very good businesswoman. Maybe she could have fended for herself. But that's why God said, Care for the widows and the orphans because widows in Jesus' day might not have the best opportunities. Now her son is dead. So she's grieving her only child. She is grieving her husband. She is grieving her future. She's walking behind in this funeral procession crying. And Jesus approaches this scene. And the Bible says in verse 13 of Luke 7, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Those are some strange words in my mind on the outset for Jesus to say, do not weep. I keep a record of all the funeral services I've ever been involved in. If I've just had a scripture and a prayer or the main message, and I keep a record of the weddings I did. I told Pastor Mike earlier that I don't know if it was a seminary professor who encouraged me to do that or, or a father in the ministry that I've had a couple of guys that invest their life in me. But anyway, I started keeping a record. There's actually a book, a record book for those things. And I ran out of room for the funerals. I've been involved in over 300 funerals, 
Your pastor's done more than that uh, in my 30 years of ministry. And I've done about 88 weddings. So I tell people, if you're asking me, I can't guarantee you're going to get married, but I pretty promise you, you're probably going to die. You know, the odds are against you. You're going to die. I don't know about married, but death's coming unless Jesus does first. So in those 300 plus funerals, not one time, not one time have I said to someone grieving the loss of someone they love, don't cry. You don't say that, do you? You don't. If there's a time to cry, that's the time to cry. And yes, I'm going to turn 60 next month. And I might just cry. Wah, wah, wah. I don't It's crazy to hear myself say that because I, I don't feel 60. I, you know, I, I, don't want to, I don't know if I want to be 60, but I'm going to be 60. So it's, you know, it's either that or heaven. Heaven's all right. But, you know, I'd like to see his grandson for a little while now. 30 years ago, on my 30th birthday... I put my second born child, my first son, in a box and put him in a hole in the ground. Austin was born at 24 weeks, lived 11 hours and died. If you had told me not to cry that day, we would have had trouble. It just ripped my heart out. And it was just, it, would, it, was, it wrecked our world for a little while. A year and a half later, I have my son whose name is Seth. He was born at 24 weeks, pound and a half. Stayed at Baptist Hospital, what now St. Thomas Midtown was Baptist. Um, he stayed there 135 days before he ever went home. Uh, he's 28 years old now, married three years, and you would never know he had trouble. But the Lord has done miraculous things. I prayed for my first son, Austin, I believe with all my heart that kid's going to live. The Lord's going to do something cool with him. And he didn't. He didn't. I asked my director of missions down in Murray County where we lived when Seth was born, will you preach Seth's funeral? And he said, I'll, I'll be there when you need me, if you need me. I'm still praying for him, but I'm getting this preacher for his funeral. And the kid's 28 years. I can't, don't invite me to a prayer conference. I know nothing about prayer. Pray with faith, doesn't happen. Pray without faith, Lord does miracles. I don't understand all that stuff. All that to say, if there's a time to cry, surely it's then. But Jesus knew what he was about to do because he was moved with compassion. And he touched that box that boy was in and he came back to life and he set up and began to speak. Would that not have been a crazy cool thing to see? And the Bible says that Jesus gave him back to his mother. You know what compassion will do? It'll bring life out of death. That's what compassion does. That's why we need to show compassion. Because we are the first Jesus that some people see. And we do it in acts of compassion. Because you care about somebody, they begin to take a step toward Jesus. Because you care about somebody, you give them an invitation. Because you minister to them in Jesus' name, you give them a little information about who Jesus is. And as we, God's people, are people of compassion, people will then be drawn. Don't you know that people are tired of church people being mean, being bitter, being unhappy, being grumpy, being bad neighbors? Man, the world knows what the church is against. 
Why don't we let them know what the church is for? Let's be kind to people. Let's love people in Jesus' name. Let's show compassion. And that those acts of compassion may just be the first step in them coming to know him. You know what the Bible says about when we get saved, when we come to know Jesus? It says we move from death to life. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus, our Redeemer, we sang about this morning.